It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. And uh, it's regular guest time here at Film Sociology. We're breaking the clock today. The, 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 kind of like an Altman film. The clock is a guide. Sometimes <laughs> we follow it and sometimes we don't. But back in studio after a couple weeks, the Film Yaps Chris Lloyd is here. How are you, Chris? A pleasure to be here as always. Thank you. Um, sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, life and or... Other forms of entertainment get in the way sometimes. And looking at what opened this week in theaters, uh, I'm really okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's a bunch of small movies that they didn't show to critics or that you probably have never even heard of. And then one big-ish movie is kind of sandwiched between two or three other very big-ish movies. Um, and... Yeah, that's not worth going <laughs> so, to. But we're we're gonna get we're gonna get to that in a little bit. But I I have. I've talked with Chris a few times about this about talking about this particular film, which he wrote about on the film app, filmyap dot com. I think we talked about it two appearances ago, and then the last time you you were here, we were going to talk about it, and we wound up not talking about it. So now we're going to start the show, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to discuss the hand. Yes, but the question is <laughs> which hand, because uh, as we discussed previously, you know the story is. Uh, I work pretty far ahead on the the reeling backward column, the you know always older movies. Um, although you know it, it's it's gotten a, as recent as like early two thousands, but as I say, I I I determine how far back I shall reel. Of course, but um, <laughs> uh, so you know like like right now I'm working on Ryan's daughter for August. Whoa, so okay. I, I I do try and work ahead just because. Like, you know, we've got Indie Film Fest coming up next month, and That's that will true. take away from my time to look at classic films. And then the summer blockbuster season will be upon us. Oh, it's we're, well, we're it's, already in the midst. We're, we're like four weeks deep into it for all. I, I suppose. I, do, we, do, we, do we give that to Logan or to Guardians of the Galaxy for starting the season? Uh, no, I would think, yeah, I mean, you know, Logan was actually, what, like March? I would say the, the fate of the Furious in April. Oh, that that's kind true. of the unofficial okay, start. Fine. 
Just like Christmas shopping keeps getting earlier and earlier. Yeah, but so so the deal was that I you know I had seen The Hand, which was the second feature film directed by Oliver Stone, starring Michael Caine. Yep. Um, you know, back when I was I don't know, you know, I think it came out in eighty one. So I, actually nineteen, yeah, eighty one. That's right. So I would have been you know eleven or twelve um, when I saw it, and I loved it. Uh, even Uh-oh. at the time, as I recognized that it was sort of, you know, just trash. Ridiculous. But, you know, as the great Pauline Kael would say, there's trash and glorious trash. And for me, that that that, that sort of film, you know, the, the idea is that it's a uh, uh, an artist, family, fairly far, famous artist, uh, uh, loses his hand in a free car accident. And then he imagines they, they never found the hand. And he imagines that the disembodied hand is still crawling around and starts killing people who annoy him. Um, and or then, does it? Yeah, and then the question is, but, you know, it, it's very, you know, in the movie, as you're watching, it's like, okay, this is all in his mind. He's just having a psychosis, and he thinks it's the hand. Um, you know, and then, like, the last scene is like, you know, like, but maybe really is a hand yeah, doing it, all Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, so because of this... And I, I remember the, the trailers for the hand because this this was uh, this was Kane wound up doing um, if I remember he did yeah he kind of did back to back to back thrillers he did Dress the Kill before yeah. this and then The Island which really wasn't thr- a thriller but they kind of pushed it as a thriller and we'll get to Kane's yeah, career horror ish elements yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, but we'll get to his career in a little bit so so yeah there was just this hand so and as, and listening to, I listened to the commentary by Oliver Stone by the way Oliver Stone commentaries are always entertaining and yeah. fun and and he. He even admits that does, he was does, insane back then. Does Kane join him for the commentary? No, they disappointing. See, the, I know the best commentaries are the director and the star, and especially always. if it's my. I could listen to Michael Caine talk about every film he walks in, even even the junk, which we'll get to in a minute. But 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 uh, Stone admits he wanted to make repulsion. Yeah. He wanted to make his version of repulsion and Warner Brothers like, eh, no. And he had he had to do some reshoots afterwards to add more gotcha scary moments. Um but there 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 are a few times uh, I was I was 11 when that when this film came out and it, watching it it was either one or two. It was it was going to go down one or two paths. You know, it was it was all going to be in his head, uh-huh. or they could actually go that route and actually have a severed hand killing people. Yeah. Um. I. I. You know. If you have more than I normally, I think if you have more than two or three options slash MacGuffin slash, uh, you know, uh, uh, suspects of horror thriller, I I think you're kind of you know kind of clutching at straws. The, an exception to that rule was a film I know that we have talked about constantly among the IFJA is The Babadook. Yeah. Because there was a film that had, it could have gone anywhere. It could have been the kid. It could have been the mom with postpartum depression. Or it could just be a scary book that kills people. Or The House. And I was good with any of those. Yeah. That's an exception to that rule. But uh, but yeah, he wanted he wanted to make he wanted to make uh, his version of Polanski's Repulsion, but cheaper. And instead of Catherine Deneuve, you have Michael Caine. Yeah, and very very wide chromosome testosterone version of. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I write, you know, and again, I, I admit this is you know a, a, a trashy, you know, low budget, schlocky movie. <laughs> but um, you know, I still enjoy it. Uh, and if you read the uh, the column, uh, you know, I talk about there is you know. 
you know the best horror films do have some kind of a subtext going on, and then it is sure. there, which is you know it, it's basically about like male dominance and gender roles, and he you know he he you know, the character that he draws for his he does like a nationally syndicated newspaper comic strip that's basically Conan. They call it I think it's Mandro. Yeah, something it's like Conan. that. And so, <laughs> or as we say, so not Conan. Yeah, and so he you know he's having problems with his wife. Basically, his wife wants to break away from his sort of very oppressive sort of uh, personality, and he wants to exert his will on her. He wants to exert his will, w- will on the world. Uh, and then when he loses his hand, it's sort of like it takes away his, you know, uh, and I'm not into Freudian, you know, analyses. Are you, are you saying sometimes a hand is a giant male appendage? Uh, it's more <laughs> like, you know, for him, like Mandro is his, is what he really loses. He loses, he feels like he loses his manhood, his sense of dominance. Um, because it's true that, you know, he likes to think of himself as I'm a tough guy who tells what everyone wants to do. But really, he's sort of an effete British guy who wears With sweater vests and, and has a lilting and curly accent. hair, yeah. And curly has a, a very impressive Jufro going on uh, in this, especially later scenes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, he and his wife separate. He goes off to this rinky-dink little uh, community college somewhere. Like, like in I the North and West, Northwest. something like that. And there's there's every guy's f- dream cinematic college female. Yes, or just female in general. <laughs> okay, you know, fine. You know, th- these women that exist only in the movies, which is just that she has like a sort of a lonely guy with no personality. And she just decides that I'm going to go seduce him. And yeah, and on top of that, you also have, and this was this was another thing that at the time, but you had you had a Bruce McGill sighting. Yeah, I think this was the first thing I had seen him do after Animal House. And I was he, like, oh my gosh, hey, he, he plays like the drunken psychology professor right. who kind of befriends him and he starts explaining to him about all these blackouts he's having. Where the yeah, and so it's just it's just a, it's a it's a goofy movie. Um, I mean, I still have fun watching it. it I, you know, it was probably mildly scary to me back in 1981. It's not scary now. No. Uh, it, it, if anything else, ladies and gentlemen, you rent this for the garage scene. Yes. For for Michael Caine. Michael Caine has two Academy Awards. Michael Caine is uh, you know, a stab- legendary actor, and he, he will be the first to tell you if he has made rubbish. And, so, and we'll get to that. But, but, but seeing him roll around in a garage, or a garage if you're English, with this hand clutching at his throat. This is not really a yeah, the spoiler alert on a 35-year-old yeah. film. But, yeah, I mean, it, there's some there's some goofy stuff you do in your lifetime as an actor, um, whether it's, you know, bad CG or, you know, the giant Gila monster or something. Other. But but watching him roll around on that is something. They're not going to show that in the Oscar reel, I think, when he gets the Thalberg Award, and that's a shame. But it's, it's a yeah, it is, it is kind of goofy fun. Chris, was this the film? Um, I always, for me, the example of you were talking about something that was kind of scary when you were younger, and then you get older, and you're like, oh. Mine was uh, Vincent Price's Madhouse. Oh, yeah. Early early 70s, it was after Dr. Fibes, and I always, it was, it was on late night TV, Saturday night. I snuck out of bed. You know, no lights on in the house except for the glow of the screen, and I'm watching it. And, you know, about halfway through, uh, the cat jumped onto my lap. So, ah! and lights are on in my dad's room, and here he comes, and then I got to go back. And then I watched it again in high school, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's not very. Yeah. Oops. Um, speaking of Dress to Kill, I think it was the film that came made right before this. That movie scared the utter. Bleep, you know, bleep out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, that would that. Oh my gosh. That's you know what? For give it to Sir Michael to go from uh, Brian De Palma to Oliver Stone. 
is yeah. back-to-back projects. That's a that's a chore. Yeah. Um, okay. I, remember, I remember my teacher. It was like I said, it was on HBO, and I told my teacher that I had seen it, and she was appalled that my parents had let me see it. Did your parents I, know? I was like, no. My dad was working the night shift <laughs> at that point, so you know he was gone, and yeah. I've, so it was more negligence really than bad parenting. <laughs> yes, more than anything like that. Uh, I also, you know, funny things I, I I seem to notice about movies that you know. Uh, I mentioned this thing. So uh, Andrea Markovici plays the wife in this. Did she do anything after this? Not much. She was, I think she's mostly been a stage actress. Okay. Um, and uh, if you remember the film Real Genius, everyone remembers Val Kilmer. Yeah. You know, actually a supporting character in that. The the star of that film was the, the young nerdy guy uh, played by Gabriel Jarrett, who had like that very brief window of 80s stardom. I swear those are two people. Andrea Marco No, Vici. Oh, yeah, you posted a picture of that on social media, I think. I, yeah, and it's in, it's in the review, too. If you go, I found, found photos of them next to each other. I swear they're the same person. Okay, not really, but and, I, I, I do. I, I'm not you, but I sort of take a, a weird sort of pride in spotting things in movies that yes. no one else does. Like, one of my favorite ones recently is... It's terrible, but it's out on video this week. Fifty Shades Darker. Yeah. Okay. I think I swear I think I'm the only person in the world noticed that they give um, Dakota Johnson, who of course is the daughter of Melanie Griffiths and Don Johnson, a, and Don Johnson, a line of dialogue in the movie that is an exact copy of one of the last lines of dialogue that Melanie Griffiths says in Working Girl, which is about, uh, it's, it's kind of seemingly a throwaway line about where she's greeting her secretary and says, you know, like, you know, hey, don't, if you're going for, you know, if you're going for coffee, or only get me coffee if you're going for some too, blah, 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 and then we'll make it up as we go along. And she repeats that line of dialogue word for word. And I noted in my review, and I searched to see if anyone else spotted it, and I swear, and I, I don't know why, but somehow that's a, for me, for film critics, that's a spike the football moment. Was was Dakota Johnson vacuuming late? Was she forced to vacuum an office? Like, uh, anyway, that's a long no. working girl reference. But so we were talking about, you know, the thing with the hand. The funny part is, is um, I and, you know, six other people are still DVD members of Netflix. Uh, you know, I have both the streaming membership and the DVD thing. You know, it's eight bucks a month. Right. Um, and I always defend it because, you know, even today with all the options and competitors and Hulu and Amazon and everything else, still only a tiny, tiny percentage of classic film are available for streaming. If you, if you want to see the stuff, you've got to get it on DVD. And so that's why, so a lot of the things I get through DVD. So couldn't get um, the hand streaming. So, oh, so I said, oh, it's available on Netflix DVD. I get it, and it shows up in the mail. And I'm like, what is this? It's a British film from 1960 um, with vaguely the same concept of there's a hand, maybe a hand going out there. Kill- maybe not. Uh, and so just for the heck of it, I watched it and wrote a review of it, followed immediately by the Michael Caine hand. And you should... Let me guess, is John Vickers not going to have this as a double bill down in Bloomington? No, I don't think so. Not unless he's you know really looking to... Uh, Intense uh, procedural dramas. It is. It's, it's like a crime procedural. And it's, it's very short. It's only like 83 minutes. Um, and it... The setup is that a bunch of soldiers were uh, captured uh, by the Japanese at the end of World War II, even though the very first scene, I swear to God, it says 1946. The the, the subtitle says 1946, and I'm like, how is it still World War II when it's 1946? But, you know, we're living in a country where people don't know what century the Civil War took part in, so... 
Uh, but enough about Washington. But so they're 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 tortured, and the he the Japanese commander asks them for information, and he starts cutting off people's hands if they don't give it to him. And of course, one guy you know cowers out and 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 betrays them and gives the information. The other guys get their hands lopped off, and now it's like supposed to be you know 15 years later or 14 years later if the subtitle is to be believed. And you know people start getting murdered and various contretemps of these guys being reassembled, and it's just it's it's, it's mostly just people in room. Talking, uh, my daughter's favorite genre. Yeah, I mean the opening bit with the Japanese commander is is kind of uh, scary, and he's played by you know like a a, a British guy in bad makeup. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's just it's it's sort of fascinating how bad it is, and they they even managed to cast all these male British actors who look and sound alike. So, like, you know, a guy comes on and talks, and I'm like, who is that? And, you know, they didn't really try and age him up too much with makeup or anything. And and then, like, you know, like, they're having a gunfight in a barn near the end, and then suddenly some other guy shows up and, and shoots the bad guy. And, you know, and like, and who's the new guy that showed up? I mean, I, I literally, you know, it was like the equivalent of, you know, I couldn't tell any of the white people apart. So, ladies and gentlemen, when you come across this on TCM at three o'clock in the morning, you have been, you have been warned by Chris Lloyd to avoid the British hand. And I don't even know if you'll be able to get it, uh, like you know, I uh, somewhere on TV because I had never heard of it, I'd never seen it before, and now you've seen it. And now I've seen it. And that's directed by uh, Schlockmeister Henry Cass, uh, and uh, it's uh, they're both kind of very vaguely. Based on an old silent film called The Hand of Orlac. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that. Mm. I also reviewed that in The Reeling Backward, I think, about a year ago. So, handsy movies. Very, oh, very good. You were, you were mentioning earlier similar lines said, um, and, and two immediately came to mind. But they're done by the same actor in two different films. Malcolm McDowell in the in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, mm-hmm. where he is. He's not... Dr. Loomis. Well, he is Dr. Loomis, but he's so not Donald Pleasance. But now he's he is an author and kind of a you know TV personality star, you know killer hunter that sort of thing. And he's at a press conference and things are going not well at the press. Kind of like press conferences we've been seeing on TV lately. Oh boy! And and uh, and he says to the uh, to the press, "Let me make this nice and sparkling clear," which is something he says in a Clockwork Orange, yeah. which I was I was I remember when the Lion King opened in theaters back in 1994. I was in a theater in Danville, Illinois. I, looking back, I was the only person by himself. Everybody else was there with their families. So to everybody in Danville, sorry. But when Scar, voiced by Jeremy Irons, says to Simba, when Simba says, Uncle Scar, you're so weird, and his response is, you have no idea. <laughs> I'm the only one who laughed because I was the only one in the theater that had seen Reversal of Fortune. Oh, boy. Little, little tiny film. Great dork film, by like, the way. It's kind of been God, forgotten, great, unfortunately. Great. Uh, I'll give you another one of, mine, okay. one of mine. Here's one of mine, and I'm not sure if I've ever expressed this to another human, maybe <laughs> b- back in the day, but... Because uh, like at first I was like I'm just seeing that, but no, it's actually there. Is there are is like two or at least at least two, maybe three Harrison Ford movies from like the early to mid '80s, uh-huh. where there's almost an identical shot where it's you, he, he's like climbing up a wall, like almost falling off, and then what you so what you see is the precipice of where we think he fell off or he's climbing up, and then you see just his hand come up, and the hand. You know, is like not the Michael Caine hand, not the Michael the Harrison Ford, and it's kind of uh, searching around a little bit for uh, you know a a handhold, 
and finds it, pulls himself up, and then you know Harrison Ford's head and then whole shoulders and whole body come into view. Uh, and to what finally convinced me was like I'm not just seeing this is that in both cases he has two fingers of the hand wrapped with cloth like they've been braced. Right. And those movies are Blade Runner. You remember where he gets his two yep. fingers bent back by Rooker Hauer yeah. and he bends them back and wraps them up. And then again in um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when the uh, rope bridge breaks mm-hmm. uh, is toward the, it's almost the exact same shot. The wrapped fingers up over the top grabs the thing pulls himself up and then he puts the idol up and shows that he got it. Go and look. And I, I'm trying to think. I think there's one other, but I've forgotten what the it was. The Mosquito Coast. Maybe I, maybe I haven't seen the Mos- Mosquito Coast since 1985, so maybe wow. it's in there. So there, there, there is that. Okay. Uh, Michael, back to Michael Caine for a little bit. Um, so this is, I, if I remember right, the he, Caine, of course, is famous for saying, I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the view from the house that that movie has given me. And I believe that was to the film Ashanti. Was it the 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 because he's uh, I think it was because that was the human trafficking slave trader film that he was in with uh, Peter Ustinov and Richard Fleischer directed it and and I, I think that's what it was. either that or that was what he considered the worst film he ever worked on, but I know the story was the hand he was. For the garage or garage for that house. Yes. So, so the, the famous garage scene to build the garage. So, so I was looking back at – I was trying to find a period of of Kane's career because, again, this is a man who admits I've done good films and I've done bad films and they pay me to do whatever. So I was looking back starting to about 19 – started in 1975. I was trying to find a stretch of maybe 11 years from – Two monumental films in Kane's career, uh, The Man Who Would Be King, and then his first Academy Award for Hannah and Her Sisters. Now, ladies and gentlemen, especially you young folks out there, the 70s were a time, besides being one of my my favorite decade for film for directors, but there was also a lot of disaster movies and a lot of all-star casts where actors got, big-name actors got paid big money to do very little. Yeah. Um, you know, as Roger Ebert once said, you know, the little, the if you saw the little mug shots at the bottom of the poster, that's that's a bad sign. Yeah. So I'm going to start with The Man Who Would Be King, 1975, and that man won two, three, four films in 75. Wow. Uh, Peeper, The Romantic English Woman, and The Will Be Conspiracy. So anyway, so, but... But Man Who Would Be King, that's one, you know, I'd love to see the offshoot, you know, the offset antics of Sean Connery, Michael Caine, and John Huston. Yes. That, that would be great. Okay. Um, follow up. Harry and Walter go to New York. Him and uh, I believe it was Elliot Gould and James Caan. The Eagle has landed, which mm-hmm. had half the Screen Actors Guild in it. <laughs> um, Silver Bears. A Bridge Too Far. Oh, God, I love that movie. Also had half the Screen Actors Guild in it. The Swarm. And I think that's where the, the Jufro, the, the, the curly Michael Haired phase, Michael Caine phase began yeah. with The Swarm, 1978. Okay, an exception, California Sweet. Um, all-star cast, smaller cast, and an Oscar for Maggie Smith. Ashante, which we brought up. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Oof. The Island. And again, this was, and this was being pushed as from the author of Jaws and the Deep because right. they did well. This one did not. Modern Day Pirates. Dress to Kill. Okay, so he got a thriller, and and he knew he was going to get a lot of money to do another thriller for Warner Brothers, which was The Hand. Worked with John Huston again in the ridiculously entertaining soccer film Victory. Oh, yeah, and uh, with, Sylvester Stallone. As, as a, everyone's favorite Canadian soccer goalie, Sly, 
Pele, Max von Sydow, and people talk about the the change of the crowd in Rocky Four. That film, that crowd's older brother is victory. <laughs> yes. And that yes. Is, it is so ridiculous, yes. but with, so with, much fun. With the Germans start applauding the POWs, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so, okay, there's, uh, this, my theory's not quite handling well. Because he followed up victory with Death Trap, working with Sidney Lamette, working, of course, the one-take scene with uh, Christopher Reeve. The Jigsaw Man, Educating Rita, love Educating Rita, um, beyond the limit, blame it on Rio. Ooh, bad. Oh, you hurt. can Google image it. I know some of you guys are, but that's a bad film. <laughs> Sorry, Stanley Donnan. Um, Water, The Hullcraft Covenant, and then Hannah Her Sisters, nineteen eighty six. That's a rough. So maybe from maybe from Man Who Would Be King to uh, uh, to Educating Rita. But that's a that's a rough patch right there. There's some rough what films about right Hannah? there. I love Hannah and her I sisters. I do love Hannah and her sisters, yeah. That's, that's actually probably my favorite Woody Allen movie. Really? Yeah. I, I could see that. Some, you know, Annie Hall, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Hannah and her sisters. Um, and then, you know, Hannah and her sisters, Sweet Liberty, Mona Lisa. And, and I don't know. It just, and, of course, Jaws the Revenge in 1987, oh, <laughs> which boy. kept him from being in uh, Switching Channels. <laughs> so, anyway. so But, yeah. He's having, he's having a very nice... Elder statesman career, you know, like him, Morgan Freeman, you know. They're, they're, besides going in style. Yeah, besides going in style. But, you know, I mean, they both work. I mean, they pretty much have a movie, at least one movie every year. The thing is, you know, you reach that point in your career or maybe you have your career and you're trying to reach the point of being a leading actor or actress. But when you're doing supporting parts, man, you can be in a lot of movies. I remember Melissa Leo when she got nominated for her Oscar a few years ago, and everyone's like, "Who? Who's this, this Frozen this River new actress?" No. It's like, no, she's been around for years. And I remember the year before <coughs> her nomination. You can look it up. I can't remember what year it was, but she had eight film credits yeah. that year. Oh yeah. So yeah, and he's one. We we could say is. Kane is Michael Kane the satchel page of actors and and Chris is choking over that question because here's a here's a man who's had a hit who's had at least one slam dunk 60s 70s 80s 90s aughts and the teens is that what we're calling this decade? You know, I don't know. It's occurred to me that we've we've almost reached the end of this decade. We haven't figured out what we're calling the it. The teens, for, for, for yeah, short. So, the and, teens and, and I guess for 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 the teens, I will I will put it in Inception. You know, I, I enjoyed that and and Dark Knight Rises. So there's those. Anyway, um, so that's 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 Michael Caine. That's the hand. Glad we finally, ladies and gentlemen, film sociology. Your home for hand information. Yes. Um, okay, so. Going back to a couple titles, because really, we're, we're, we'll save King Arthur and Snatch for maybe the last two minutes of the show. Um, and Part of it was, as I, as I said earlier, I, I wasn't able to see anything this week because Thursday night I saw Buddy Guy at IU. Tuesday night, my family and I drove to Chicago to see Hamilton. That's what happens when you buy tickets way in advance. Yes. And, well, you just have to work around that. So, so the, that was good news for us. Bad news is we're tired, and I didn't see anything new this week, and I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, some <laughs> things look interesting. Um, 
you know, uh, we talked about um, a, uh, a Quiet Passion, which is the Emily Dickinson biopic. Cynthia Nixon. Cynthia Nixon. Um, what, unfortunately, wasn't screened for us. Um, the, they called uh, him Morgan. Was that it? The, yeah, the jazz documentary about uh, Lee Morgan, which I, trumpeter, I would love to see. Trumpeter but. who was murdered. Um, his wife was implicated in it. That looks interesting. The Wall, which is one of these essentially three character movies about two American soldiers in the Middle East pinned down by a sniper who's taunting them over the radar. Directed by Doug Lyman. Yes. With Aaron Taylor Johnson, who he's we did, very and fine, uh, John actor. Cena, who's getting better, the, but not quite doing Johnson better. And and it's a WWE production. Yeah. It looks, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And then we mentioned Snatch, which is the new Amy Schumer movie. Which and Goldie Hawn's the, first film in 15 years. Is it really? Yeah, mom? apparently. Wow. So she plays the mom, and she's uptight, and Amy Schumer plays the Amy Schumer <laughs> persona, yeah. such as it is. And they go for an exotic um vacation to bond and maybe meet some men and instead they get kidnapped and not screened for critics and just getting poisonous reviews now trickling in um and of course uh we mentioned the one that they did screen which is king arthur the legend of the sword it seems like every 15 years or so they feel like they got to do a king arthur movie. well there and and it's funny I, I i was about ready to say something like that but then again i work at uh, i work with an affiliate of pbs so between pbs and the bbc Every decade or so, we get some new Shakespeare, or some new Dickens, or new Austin, or something like that. So apparently, Antoine Fuqua's King Arthur wasn't enough for uh, for folks there. And before that, I believe it was First Night. Yeah, with uh, Richard. I remember that Richard one. Gere Richard Gere and Sean Gere's Connery. Lot, and Sean Connery is King Arthur. And, and Julia Ormond. And I remember my review at the time. I said that collectively, Gear and Connery were um, fifty year fifty years too old to play their parts. Uh, just that didn't that one, and I'm trying to even remember the the, the last one, um, the last Arthur film. Yeah, who was in it? Uh, oh, that was Clive Owen and Keira Knightley. Man, I'm not even. Oh, and she she was like a, a picked or something. A something, yeah. And she's yeah. Yeah. She's, oh yeah. Gosh, so so man. now yes we're, we yes we are still falling back that it's John Borman's Excalibur and Get Out of the Way yes, back in I, 1981. I love that movie and yes you can laugh at the funny parts. Yes, but it's it's to me it's the one film that you know is really based on Lamorte de Arthur um, and really t- you know took sort of took different pieces of the myth- sprawling mythology and kind of tied it all together and you've got Morgana and Mordred and Lancelot and, and Guinevere and guys you can and, look at Helen Mirren and Percival and, and everything and I love that darkness and it, it's that feeling of we're watching mythology unfurl, but and yet the characters really do seem relatable and human and eye level, and I I, I just absolutely love that movie. Uh, I was eleven when that came out, so with my dad and my 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 college years in our in my newspaper newsroom, the Daily News. Uh, my senior year, theater department was doing Camelot. And, of course, uh, some of the reporters said, I like Excalibur better than Camelot. And somebody said, yeah, more blood and genitals. So that's that's what John Borman's Excalibur brings to you. More blood and genitals and, and lots of Helen Mirren. Yes. Um, so why so Guy Ritchie is now doing King Arthur. Is there is there modern rock music like in A yes. Knight's Tale? It, well, it, it's actually, so remember, Guy Ritchie, for those who don't know, is the one who did the Sherlock Holmes films were with um, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, where they took, you know, the very dry, staid Sherlock Holmes, you know, studies and walking canes stories and turned them into, it's like... Dark alleyways and knife fights and, you know, and the music, believe it or not, is actually kind of like that music. Instead of being like medieval music, like fifth century, because 
who knows what fifth century music sounded like. It's like nineteenth century music with like you know like accordions and and strings and it wasn't an accordion. It was just a guy going you know uh, yeah. Oh, Brian Hartz, where are you? And Charlie Hunan plays um, uh, King Arthur, and they have. Absolutely, completely thrown all the stuff. I mean, other than the store, the sword, and King Arthur, they've thrown everything out. Uther Pendragon is in it, um, played by Eric Bana, but Merlin is not. Uh, Morgana uh. is not. Mordred is in it for about a second. Instead, the heavy is the completely made up, even for uh, King Arthur, of uh, 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 Uther Pendragon's brother Vertigern, <laughs> played by Jude Law. Uh, and I, I, you know, I just gotta imagine that he just said yes to Richie before ever reading a script. Dude. Does he chew? Does he? Ch- and Not does really. he chew well? No, oh. he, no, he, 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 he. It's actually supposed to be one of these more like subdued kind of uh, villains, where it's like he loves to, like you know, he loves to feel the oceans of energy and power of people being afraid of you, and he's got a little <laughs> speech about that, um, and. It's got all the Guy Ritchie visuals, which is, you know, slow-mo action from a bunch of different angles. Um, he actually even does what looks like a GoPro cameras at some point where he's, like, attached it to the actors as they're running. Oh, so, um, and, he, and he does that thing that he does in all the movies, especially the Sherlock Holmes movies, where they're, like, planning their escapade. All right, here's how this is going to go down. And so they, they're talking about their plan intercut with the plan actually occurring so you get to see how things went according to the plan and how things didn't go according to the plan and then you have these weird things where like it's the middle of the action and then you cut away to a character who's not even there like in this case it's the mage played by a french actress i can't remember her name other than that she really looks like she needs to be fed um and you know like so he's fighting somebody with a sword and she's hundreds of miles away and there's like you know a, a tornado of leaves whipping around her and i have no idea why we're seeing her it's just these it really just seems like a random assembly of shots all thrown together there's a montage where he goes to the Darklands, and this is supposed to be his big time where he embraces his destiny. Because here he's he doesn't know he's King uh, Uther Pendragon's uh, son, and he's been raised as like a street scamp, and he's become a criminal. And now he's uh, as the story opens. Arthur Arthur is in fact the crime lord of Camelot, or, or, or it's either I, I can't remember is it Camelot or Londinium? It, I heard both those names in the movie. Is, is he, I, and now Uther, he runs thinking, a brothel. But you think Uther, you say Uther Pendragon? I of course think of the whole Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes, so. yes. But so yeah, so he's like a street scamp. You know, he, he talks with that call. He does, <laughs> does that thing. Uh, but then he pulls the sword from the stone, and then he spends the rest, the rest of the movie working on his daddy issues. Um, and every time he he grabs, and if he grabs the, the Excalibur by one hand, you're fine. But if you grab it by two hands, you get like blue glowing stuff, and then he passes out. Uh, I'm not kidding. He's like a southern belle with the vapors. He's like, ah. and there's all these people who are trying to run this rebellion against Vertigern. Uh, and Vertigern, by the way, is building a tower to increase his sorceress powers. And the other country's going to pay for it. And the, other country's gonna pay for it. And the funny thing is, the, 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 the most badass things he does with his sorceress power is make a candle light without a match. You know, he just looks at it and then it pops. And I'm like, all right, that is a whole lot of construction just to be able to light a candle. Well, that's like Chris Pine working on his, uh, his, his mental powers in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah, and so... Yeah, I was talking recently about how that you know people say like why don't you give more like one yap or one star reviews? And it's like 
Well, the truth is, I don't think there are too many truly horrible movies out there because they know when they've got one on their hands that either they stop production or they push it straight to video, um, you know, or you know they just don't show it to critics. Right. Um, and even I like to think I'm a, a generous critic with wide ranging taste. I, I hear Richard Probst laughing. Yeah, I I like to. I can usually find at least something I like about even bad movies, but not this one. It it, it my my takeaway line on it is it feels like. They took the cutscenes of the video game version of this movie and made that the movie. Okay, Chris Lloyd, what is worse, this or the big title on video this week? Fifty Shades Darker. You saw Fifty Shades Dark. Did you see it in the theater? I saw it in the theater. They hey, they screened it for us. I re- and, and how and was that's th- why I respect Fifty Shades Darker more than I do Snatch because they actually showed us their movie. <laughs> that's a lot of women taking the night off. <laughs> Seriously, I I oh my gosh. Well, I, look, I know a lot of women took the time off. It was like Magic Mike. You know, there was a lot of women that had groups, and and you can send hate mail, I don't care, it's true, where, you know, people skipped work to go see this suburban mom porn in the theater. Yes. And uh, and you have an S&M. This is the second film involving S&M that is not NC-17 or unrated. Yeah, and it's really, honestly, pretty tame. Yeah. you know, uh, I admit I don't know much about BDSM uh, culture, he's, as it's called. He's saying that with a straight face. As I, as I like to say, I have enough pain in my life. I don't need to bring it into the bedroom. Woo-hoo! But, uh, uh, yeah, I'm more disturbed by the, the popularity of these movies and books than I am the fact that they're bad. It's just the fact that, you know, this, this weird niche of feminism we've reached right now where women are strong and powerful and can do anything, and yet secretly, apparently, a lot of them are pining to be whipped and handcuffed. And sign a contract doing so. And sign a contract to do so. Hi, welcome to Two Guys Talking here at Film Sociology. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's out, that's out on video. I'm sure there's an unrated version, which has more the, yeah, stuff fact, that's the, not the, going to... In fact, the version that video came this week includes an unrated version. Um, I haven't seen it, but, uh, you know, probably includes 40 extra seconds of behinds. <laughs> Depends on who it is. All right, um, shifting gears a little bit. That's this is a rough week, man. That's that, I, it is. I really you know, wish they showed us the smaller films. I, I wish I wish they had that. You know, and I realize it's summer, so people are looking towards the tent poles. But like next week, we've got a couple of the small films that they're showing to us, so that's good. And some alien thing. Um, okay. I want to get to uh, IU Cinema and the drive-ins a little bit. Um, And, of course, ladies and gentlemen, this all depends on when you are listening to this. But at the Artcraft Theater in Franklin at 7.30 p.m. tonight, Saturday, the last performance, last screening on the big screen of The Wizard of Oz. And this is a film, yes, you probably have it on video, and network television still plays it once a year. But you have a chance to see it on the big screen, so go check that out. Um, Saturday, May 13th. So actually, if you're still hightailing it down south, you can check this out. At 3 o'clock, the Academy Award-winning Best Foreign Film from uh, last year from Iran, The Salesman. Still mulling that one over. I liked it, and the 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 parallel of... I kept trying to see if there was more of a parallel between the stage version of Death of a Salesman done in Iran and what the family was going through. And I think it's living with your consequence, the consequences with the, the choices that you make. That's, that's all I, I think I kind of got out of it. I still liked it. Yeah, I don't think it was quite as good as the director's film that was um, also up for an Oscar a few a years Separation. Ago. Yeah, I thought that film was much Great better. Great film. That's, yeah. um, at 7 o'clock, as a part of the International Art House series at IU Cinema, the documentary David Lynch, The Art Life. 
And that is also being shown Thursday, May 18th at 7 p.m. Friday, May 19th at 7 p.m. Um, Colossal. Anne Hathaway, Jason Sudeikis. She is not a creature, but there's parallels between her and a creature in Korea tearing up buildings, Godzilla style. Yeah, she's got a uh, a big uh, gaijin, as they said, for Pacific Rim over there. I don't uh-huh. know. Another one looked interesting. They did not show it, show it to us, and anyway. unfortunately. And then uh, because it's IU, Tuesday, May 23rd, date, date night, Kinsey. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, better date film than Fifty Shades. <laughs> um, okay, over at the Tibbs. Okay, here, here's, here. oh gosh, you see how our pairings are. Um, screen one, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Slight. Oh, yeah, so Slight was like a, it's like a magician hustler movie. Well, I don't know anybody who's seen that. Uh, well, it, yeah, it, it came out the same week as, you know, they just didn't um, bother to. Then screen <clears throat> two. How to Be a Latin Lover. This is the film that made more money than The Circle. Yeah, I saw that. And The Fate of the Furious. That's a a weird pairing. Big, Uh, loud, dumb as rocks. And and then followed by The Fate and the Furious. Yes. (laughs) Um, Screen three, Snatched and The Circle. That's, man. And then screen four, King Arthur and Unforgettable. That's an odd, these are odd odd pairings, man. Yeah, this is Ooh, like a, boy. This is like a, uh, I can't remember, what's the the wine guy at a restaurant? How do you pronounce it? Sommelier? Sommelier? How do you pronounce that? I don't drink wine. The wine so. guy. Or the, com- the wine guy. Yeah, so. Yeah, very eclectic, cinematic oh, boy. wine guy putting those together. Over at the Skyline Drive-In, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and Logan. That's a pairing. That's yeah. a proper pairing. And if you missed Return of the Master Killer from 1980 at 2 a.m., um... Oh, and also just to to make a just a reminder, uh, the Midnight Movie Series at Landmark Keystone Arts start mark your calendars June 9th and 10th. Wolfgang Peterson's The Neverending Story. Wow, I don't think I've seen that since it came out. I think this year's theme is messed up visuals because uh, June 16th and 17th I have it on video. I you still have still cannot get a video copy of this in the United States. Ken Russell's The Devils. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Um, June 23rd and 24th, The Room, of course. Uh, June 30th and July 1st, Ponyo. July 7th and 8th, Grave of the Fireflies. July 14th and 15th, The Love Witch. June 21st and 22nd, Fantastic Planet. Oh, boy. You bizarre Euro animated films of the 70s. And then July 28th and 29th, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh. All of those are happening there. Um, I want to, again, we're, we're shuffling the clock here at Film Sociology. I want to get to Dead People We Like because we never have time for Dead People We Don't Like. There, uh, There's one actor in particular, we, we, we will break down his career a little bit, but there's one I just heard about, um, but he's kind of a known guy, familiar face, I guess, more than a, that guy. But Kurt Lowens uh, passed away on May 8th at the age of 91 was a Holocaust survivor and then started doing started doing movies in the late 50s. But his first film credit was the Academy Award-winning Sophia Loren film Two Women hmm. back in 1960. Um, and then if I remember right, a lot of uh, – yeah, born in Germany, 
but uh, wound up doing a lot of stuff. It was was one of the officers in the Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. worked on Counterpoint, the Mephisto Waltz, also did a lot of TV. You know, when you need Euro guys, you know, the FBI, Mission Impossible, 12 O'Clock High, um, the Swiss Conspiracy, the other side of Midnight from 1977 was Dr. Schuler in Firefox with Clint Eastwood. The Entity was the airport officer in Mel Brooks's To Be or Not to Be, um, was the older German soldier in A Midnight Clear, was in Spike Lee's Miracle of St. Anna, and the, and the last big film of note played the Cardinal in uh, Angels and Demons with Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. Now we get to classic that guy, Michael Parks, who, in if Mike Perry were here, I'm sure he would break down the one season that was Then Came Bronson. Um, but apparently this was, you know, there were a slew of the next James Deans in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. And Michael Parks was one of those. A yeah. um, lot of TV. And I kept going through it. And I'm like, what's the first thing that I forgot? He played Bus Riley in Bus Riley's Back in Town back in 1965. Uh, played Adam in John Huston's film of the Bible. Uh, worked on films like Between Friends. Um the Last Hard Men, played Robert Kennedy in The Private Lives of J. Edgar Hoover, slew of TV, and uh, was in Folks. I'm still wanting to work on the uh, when you take a break from your franchise. And I always remember Roger Moore growing a beard and knitting sweaters while working on the action film Folks back in 1980. Uh, played Josie Wales in the unnecessary sequel, The Return of Josie Wales, oh, God. back in 1980. Hey, work is work. Um, but this was a guy who got a lot of love from the likes of Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, and Kevin Smith. And he kind of had a kind of, oh, by the way, he was also in Death Wish 5. But 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 he had kind of a Christopher Lee-esque, really visible third act of his career. Yeah. Played uh, Texas Ranger Earl McGraw, who became a, he was, of course, seen in From Dust Till Dawn and popped up again in Kill Bill, um, both volumes, popped up in Death Proof. And Planet Terror, and then um, worked with Kevin Smith in a. It's, he has a great performance. I never want to see the film again. Red State, <laughs> where it's it's kind of if you were to combine hostile with far far right winged lunatic uh, religious types, and he plays the pastor of a church, and he has this very long, intense, disturbing sermon. That Michael Parks delivers, and it's 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 something. I'm sure you could see it uh, online. I forgot was in Argo, uh, played uh, played Jack Kirby. Um, he had two roles in in Kill Bill, sorry, Volume Two, and then was also an employee in Django Unchained, and then the Kevin Smith film Tusk, which apparently he just made on a dare, <laughs> uh, which has Justin Long as a as a blogger who winds up. In, you know, you've seen this dumb person goes to scary house yes. with scary guy, and the scary guy is Michael Parks, and you know Justin Long is not a likable character, and you want, I guess you know you, you're supposed to cheer for the dumb teenagers that get slashed or hacked or in this case be morphed and forced into becoming a walrus. Yes, but Michael Parks is so Michael Parks in this is like if you had. Peter Cushing or Vincent Price or Donald Pleasance in your, you know, half your budget would be for that person. And he's really good in it, even though the film is kind of schlocky and silly. Um, but, yeah, that's that's my Michael Parks information. 
Do you have any Michael Parks information? No, he's just one of those classic, you know, working actors. Um, you know, it was we call it a that guy where people you know, say, "Oh, I remember that face." Mm-hmm. And you know, he played a lot of villains, um, and he played a lot of lawmen. Uh, and it's interesting that dichotomy of you you have a, have people who have careers where they're either a cop or the heavy. Uh, yep, it seems like and. Uh, you know, like a Joe Don Baker would be another guy like that, you know. Exactly. Or uh, Ed Lauder. Yeah. Always a good one. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's cool. So, we, we salute you, gentlemen. Um, Want to sh- uh, We still got it. Oh, God. We got a little bit of time left here at Film Sociology. Hanging out with Chris Lloyd of the Film Yap. And uh, and for the record, yes, I am wearing my, my throwback 1968 Detroit Tiger t-shirt, Al Kaline's number. And uh, you just wrote this week about major league and your your history with baseball films oh yeah oh and again talking you wrote that what three months ago yeah like two and a half (laughs) months ago um so i never saw major league when it came out never never seen it before um and i remember it was really popular and all my friends were into it more my more jockey friends and it was like it was like to me it was like the counterpoint to bull durham i love bull durham as do i It, it is a romantic comedy Disguised as a baseball film. Yeah, as I, I like to say, it's a film that's of baseball, but not about baseball. And, well, and if you look at Tim Robbins throwing, you know that's true. Yeah. Whereas Major League is very much about baseball. Um, and I am not a baseball fan. Um, uh, I just find it tremendously dull. Um, but you know, I still like. I, I'll we'll still go to a couple of Indians games every year just because you know the venue is so fantastic and just you know doing the whole bar ballpark thing and yep. hot dogs with your kids and it's great. Um, but yeah, the game itself. Uh, but I love baseball movies, um, and there's been so many of them. And for me, you know, no sport has really translated well on film. Like baseball, you know, football, there's been some decent football movies, basketball, not, you know. And you're a basketball guy, right? I'm a big basketball guy, pro. I don't watch the college game much, but. um, Oh, boy, the state's going to be angry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, but yeah, my theory, my working theory is because baseball is so boring uh, that it lends itself to imagination uh, and storytelling, because if you were to just be interested in, you know, guy throwing, guy hitting, guy catching, there's nothing there. So it's a, it's a game that you have to like be invested in. Well, let, let me about this guy, and let me hear his history. And he came up in the minors, and his dad taught him to pitch. Or you know, this guy you know threw at his elbow, and he decided, uh, you know, Rick Ankiely decided he he got the yips, and he couldn't throw anymore, so he became an outfielder and a power hitter. Um, you know, I, I I like just the fact that you you sort of have to have the backstory to appreciate the game. You know, and I I've been a few games. I went to you know Wrigley Wrigley Field. And, you know, stood out, stood out in the stands and, like, you know, I noticed almost no one was watching the game. You know, they were interacting. They were doing their scorecards. It's like the mythology of baseball is so large and thick that it sort of just absorbs the actual game and stands in place for it. Don't you even also the fact that most baseball films are shorter than ball games? <laughs> yeah. You know, unless, yeah. You're, you know, unless you're Steve Carlton just banging out a, you know, a, a, a shutout in, you know, 85 minutes. Yeah, that is true. Um, and so Major League was interesting for me because, you know, it's, it's, it's a big comedy and it is it has been embraced by the people in MLB. Yep. You know, unlike almost any other sports film, 
um, you know, maybe you know, slap shot in hockey. But be- but even then, that's a fictional team. This yeah. is what it's one day we and, and I'm sure this is a future show. But I love I love I grew up in a minor league hockey town, and of course we live in with the Indianapolis Indians. So minor love minor league sports. Minor league sport mascots are great. Yeah. They can be very funny. But yeah, I love fictional pro teams I like it. the Miami Sharks in yeah. any given Sunday or something where the, uh, an entire league just said no no we're not we're not going to help you on this so you have to create something but this is one it's the Indians it's, it's you know the actual Cleveland Indians yeah the actual team and you know it's like people and you know sort of grouse about the team and they kind of hate them but then they love them in the end and the owners are jerk and all this kind of stuff. Jerk at in this case. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I and think they actually shot the the stuff was at Milwaukee Stadium. Um, if, if I, it's in the article. But yeah, uh, tax breaks. Yeah, it, it was. It's an okay, fun movie. Um, you know, it gave James Gammon a career that yeah, he, I don't think you know he was always going to be destined to be that, that guy, guy the, yep. the copper, the villain, that raspy voice guy. And he had, a, you know, he had a great career for like the next twenty years off of that film. And a funny aside, I mentioned the thing is James Gammon actually lived in Ocala, Florida, which is where I lived and worked for many ah. years. I was the entertainment editor at the newspaper there, the Star Banner. And obviously, I knew about him, and I tried to get interviews with him. And he was, you know, private guy, and just you know let let it be known that I. Uh, didn't want to do anything, uh, so I never did get to meet him or interview him. Uh, so my two big misses, two two famous guys at the same time living in Ocala, Florida, John Travolta and James Gammon, and I didn't get to meet or interview either one of them. Well, you came closer with Gammon, I'm guessing. That's, no, no, th- really. At least with a rejection? You know? Well, I mean, it was like through channels. It was just like, ah, oh, no thanks. You know? Okay. Well, you know, then there's Travolta and his giant yeah. plane, so. Uh, and speaking of which, I just actually wrapped my latest uh Reeling backward that I uh, finished, I think they'll publish in late July, is The Natural, another Ah. baseball movie. Flaws and All, one of my all-time favorite films. I just love it. And Glenn Close still admits she got nominated for Standing Up. Yes. And and to the great lighting crew to make her her hat like a halo. And there's Barry Levinson has lots of halos in that film. And really heavy Randy Newman music. And yes, he literally knocked the cover off the ball. And yes, he changed the ending of the film and it's fine. And that's fine because... (laughs) It is a big, silly, old heart, you know, just a heart winning, uh, yeah, crowd pleaser. Well, well, read my column. Um, I'm actually very proud of it. I worked on it for a long time. Uh, and uh, for for me, it's another. It's a film, you know, in a lot of ways, like Excalibur. It's less about what you're watching, and it's about the creation of myth and mythology, and you know how we come to revere revere people. Um, and just a just a film I actually love, and you know the, the cinematography is so great. Uh, Randy Newman musical score, easily one of the most recognizable musical themes and, in movies. And I believe it doesn't Major League Baseball still use that from time yeah, to time. So I think they do. Uh, Robert Duvall as the you know the squirrel, so squirrely, every, scrappy yeah. sports journalist. By the way, Joe Don Baker, so not Babe Ruth. So he's not, so, he's the whammer. That's right. And the New York Knights, pinstripes, black and white. But it's the Knights. It's the Knights. Oh, uh, and if you do, you remember the name of the semi-pro team that Roy Hobbs was playing on when he got picked up for the Knights? No, Chris. What are they called? The Hebrew Oilers, which was a oh made up gosh. for, which was made up for the, either the book or the movie, but now is a real team. Uh, because people were inspired by the like, movie, like the Springfield team in The Simpsons. I think there was a team that wound up uh, that was a fictional team in The Simpsons, and then they wound up becoming a team. Something, so, yeah, like that. And by the way, go Richmond Jazz. <laughs> That's a summer league. All right, there's uh, got a few minutes left. There's a couple of films I wound up watching because I didn't see the other films. Um, 
I think we, you know, I should, when we have, when I have a bunch of you guys in, you guys meaning the IFJA, there's a thing I always like to talk about, the, what I call the criterion wish list. You know, everybody, every film critic has one of, I wish these films would get the criterion treatment. And yes, I've joked about Blackula and Three the Hard Way. I really would love a two, and I know with Ed Johnson not, a two-disc criterion treatment of Bill Forsythe's Local Hero. Oh, yeah. I concur. But I would love a two-disc treatment of Louis Malle's Atlantic City. Oh, yeah. Not too many people wonderful, have seen them. Wonderful. Wonderful. Burt Lancaster. Um, Wallace Shawn in an early scene. But it was it was a Louis Malle-directed film of... Uh, Lancaster's an aging gangster, sort of, and he winds up crossing paths with Susan Sarandon, who's trying to be uh, an up-and-coming uh, blackjack dealer, and there's drugs and mobsters and old guy with young women, it, and it's not as creepy as other young guys, older guys going after young women. Um, it has a special place in my heart, because I know I might would spend a lot of summers in Atlantic City with my family, and you get to see the, the transition from old Navy or old piers to casinos, and it really hasn't recovered since. But I think it's a great underappreciated crime drama. Got a bunch of Oscar nominations, well deserved, and and I hope more people check that out. Uh, speaking of Criterion, they put it out a couple of weeks ago, and I finally sat down and watched it for the first time in a while. Um, I really am a fan of the two Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, S.E. Hinton novel films, The Outsiders, but the Criterion one is Rumblefish, mm-hmm. the black and white. If if uh, if the the Outsiders was the big sweeping epic with a young unknown cast, mostly um, this was the art film shot in black and white. Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, Mickey Rourke at his most Brando esque. Um, Dennis Hopper, Diana Scarwood, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and it's it's a brother living under the shadow of his older, more famous brother who has had a change of heart in the the kind of street gang life. Um, it's it's he wanted to make an art film for teenagers, and mm-hmm. and not a lot of people embraced it. And hopefully, they'll more people will be able to check it out. Really cool score by Stuart Copeland. A lot of imagery of time, and and they, and. The Outsiders and Rumblefish were the two films that kind of spoiled the – for me, um, after seeing those, I didn't have as much interest in the suburban fantasy fairy tales that John Hughes put out for the rest of the decade. So there's that. And then um, one of those – I came across it. We, we By the way, we, we showed each other photographs of movies we haven't watched yet at our house. So chipping away at it. I found it you know, at a certain video store for a couple of bucks. And I, I only got it because I, the director and screenwriter, who, by the way, was a guest on this show, but <laughs> welcome to the name-dropping portion, Peter Bogdanovich's She's Funny That Way, where he, he had made it in 2014, and uh, nobody saw it, and it didn't get a real push, but you it's a screwball comedy, because that's what Bogdanovich does every other time, with Imogene Poots, Owen Wilson, uh, Jennifer Aniston, Rice Ifans, the um, Imogene Poots, who's got a ridiculous New York accent, with her ridiculous parents, Richard Lewis and Sybil Shepard. I love cinematic gene pools, um, but it's some. It's one of those where, and it, it's kind of reminiscent of what What's Up Doc, but it's one where there's these intertwining stories among these characters: a playwright, a prostitute, a therapist. But it's one of those that apparently in a town of what six million people, they they literally run into each other, literally and figuratively. And uh, it's a manic energy film, and not bad for somebody who's in his kind of. I think he's though in his late seventies. 
but uh, you know, got the film done, and uh, it's it's not it's not his best work, but it's it's some work worth checking out. Yeah. So, all right, um, we got about two minutes left. What else is coming up in the film app? I know you're. I think you're talking about Ryan's daughter very soon. Yeah, I'm working on that one right now. That'll be in August. I'm, I trying to even remember what other ones which means we'll have to bring you back in in like October to talk about it yeah Um, uh, we do have we mentioned we have Indie Film Fest is coming up next month um, so I'll be excited about that Um, always interesting to see what's coming I mean it seems like we've always had um, at least a few IFGA award nominees and winners come out of that uh, every year so that's always exciting and and of course Baywatch (laughs) <laughs> yes, they did. They did set us up a, a screening for Baywatch for and next, Alien, <laughs> and and Alien, which we we need to give props to. Shout out to IFJ member Bob Bloom, who Bob is our muscle. <laughs> he is our muscle. We we have uh we have certain one or two studios that we have problems with giving us screenings, and Bob has now managed to. First one was Logan earlier this year, uh, and now Alien Covenant. They weren't going to show it to us, and he just got on the the phone or the email and bothered people until they until they submitted. Bob Bloom rattles his sabers for he, the IFJA, and we appreciate it. He is the Bluminator. Wow! Does have you has he have you heard have you said that have you said that to him? I'll have to put it on Facebook. Very good, Chris. Well, the film you have, Chris Lilly, the film you have, and indie style best dressed critic on TV. Thanks for hanging out. My pleasure. I love coming on the show. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Soylent Green is people. Zardoz has spoken. Sure. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, Michigan. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live.